Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Human Circus. In mid-October 1404, Timor threw another of the great celebrations to which Clavijo and the other travelers had become accustomed. One of those gatherings, which they had likely grown more than a little weary of since their arrival. Timur's grandson was there, the son of his firstborn son, Pir Muhammad, who had been highly important in his invasion of India, had led its advanced element. He had since been governing in Kandahar, and had been summoned in by Timur because it had been seven years since he'd seen him. A long time to not see your family, particularly if you were considering them as heir to your empire. When Clavijo saw Pir Mohammed that day, he found him to be dark, beardless, and held in reverence by all those present. He was richly dressed in blue satin, embroidered with golden designs, and his head was crowned by a hat set with pearls, gems, and rubies. Clavijo bowed before him, in the same manner as before Timur himself, on one knee, hand to chest, and with men's arms under his, holding him tight. There were two leather-clad wrestlers there, performing before this royal governor, we might say before this prince, and at first neither could throw the other, but finally one did, pinning him and ending their contest. A woman the text identifies as Kano was there. First wife, I said in a previous episode, though that would not be first chronologically, for there were other consorts and wives before her. First in importance, though, that could be argued for, for she was held to be a favorite and a wielder of considerable influence. She was the descendant of Chagatai Khan, a descendant of Genghis Khan, and a woman whose connection to Timur, after he had defeated her first husband, connected him to that lineage with all of its power and significance. Sarai Mulk Kanum, for that was her name, arrived that day in a flowing sleeveless gown of gold-embroidered red silk, its skirts held aloft by fifteen attendants to allow her to walk. Her face was framed with black hair, 
and peering out from behind a veil. It looked like paper. So coated was it with white lead to protect it from the sun. Above it, mounded a high-crested red headdress, picked out in precious stones, and topped by a little castle set with rubies and white feathers. Armed eunuchs went before her, and three hundred women waited upon her. Over her was carried a large umbrella of white silk. And of course, Timur was there. He was giving the Castilian master of theology a drink from his own hand. He was watching the tumblers and acrobats with their poles and ropes. He was being entertained by the fourteen elephants, which were made to run and perform tricks, their heavy movements causing the earth itself to shake. The gathering drank, and they feasted, the usual meats, rice, and sugared bread. And as it grew darker, they feasted again by the light of the lanterns. Eventually, Clavijo and the others saw that this would not soon end, and they took their leave. The good times were coming to a close. Hello and welcome. My name is Devon, and this is Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World the history podcast that traces that medieval world through the stories of its travelers. And this history podcast has a Patreon. A Patreon where you can listen ad-free, early, and with extras on the end, on a pay-what-you-want-slash-can basis. So, for as little as $1 a month, a classic vending machine purchase per month, you can do so at Patreon dot com forward slash human circus. Or you can find that via my website at humancircuspodcast.com. This episode, I want in particular to thank Grammar Tucker and Mark Moyo. Thank you both very much. And now, back to the story. Back to the story of Rui Gonzalez de Clevijo and his embassy from Enrique of Castile to Timor of Samarkand. Last episode, we reached Samarkand, and we witnessed feasts and celebrations. We settled in among Timor and his people as they enjoyed his return from military triumphs abroad. We saw a little of the business he'd returned to, family weddings and a reimposing of order and authority. And we had a hint of his affairs with the Yongli Emperor of Ming China a sense that the relationship was less than entirely friendly. We'll have more than a hint of that here, as we turn towards the final period of Clavijo's embassy, and of Timur's reign. This episode, there will be quite a bit less feasting than we had last time. This will be the final episode of the Clavijo series, and we're moving in to the last legs of that story. It's the story of two final journeys. The ambassador's time with Timur wasn't entirely over yet, as late October rolled into November. They spent time among the 14 or 15,000 tents of Timur's people, tents painted blue and gold and used as mosques, tents of silk lined with sable fur, tents lined with rows and rows of great wine jars. 
They weren't quite done with the wine yet, either. But things were starting to take a turn. They gathered now in Samarkand itself, little larger than Sevilla, the visiting Castilian deemed it, but with a great number of houses outside its earthen walls, and with gardens and vineyards extending on all sides. The surrounding lands were rich, plentiful, abundant in birds and sheep, and watered by many rivers. The green of its gardens, such that as you approached the city, you felt as though you were nearing a thick forest. The number of melons entering the city every day by camel was enough to amaze the visitors, and food, more generally, is reported as being amply enough available to be inexpensive, even as the land and city played host to Timur's substantial army. If it was nature that provided Samarkand's advantageous situation, it was Timur himself who had accelerated its growth. Into the city, he had poured treasure, taken from such far-flung locations as Anatolia and India, and he had overseen its expansion and embellishment in brick and blue-glazed tile. As those conquests had multiplied, into Samarkand and its surrounding villages went many of the people he'd conquered. They had brought sheer numbers in population, but also knowledge and specialization in construction, arts, crafts, science, and theology, bringing workers in silk, metal, and glass, and bringing a tremendous diversity. Of Christians alone, one might find Armenians, Greek Orthodox, Syrians, Thomas Christians, and among others, those perhaps misidentified in the text as Christians, who quote, baptized with fire in the face. And those surrounding villages and suburbs reflected his victories in another way, too. Many of them were actually named after cities he had taken on campaign, so that truly great cities such as Baghdad, Sultania, Shiraz, and Damascus became but minor neighborhoods on the periphery of this imperial center to which he had recently returned. And what would that have been like? What would it have been to be there in Samarkand on its ruler's arrival after years away? After conquest, after conquest. Clovijo was perhaps a little late to have been part of that initial excitement. But then, it had happened before. Timur had been away for years before, and then made his triumphant re-entry after victorious campaigns. Such had been the case in 1396, and we do have some descriptions of that. To quote Sharaf Adin Aliyazdi, the 15th century scholar and historian, on all sides were to be seen garlands of flowers with crowns, and musicians performing the newest pieces of music to the honor of his majesty. The walls of the houses were hung with carpets, the roofs covered with stuffs, and the shops set off with curious pieces. There was a vast multitude of people, and the streets were covered with velvet, satin, silk, and carpets, which the horses trampled underfoot. All was made ready to receive Timur, and into this fully decorated city paraded he and his soldiers with the treasures and the enslaved which their victories had won. 
Feasts were ordered, plunder dispersed, and criminals were executed. It all sounds quite familiar, quite like the festivities that we've seen something of on this most recent return to Samarkand. There, in that city, Timur now held a feast for his grandson, who had died in Turkey. He decided that the chapel constructed to honor that grandson was too low, and ordered those working on it to tear it down and try again. But he otherwise seems to have been happy. The ambassadors were given yet more robes of honor, along with bags of silver, and work on the chapel went quickly. Under Timur's attention, Clavijo said it came down and went back up in only ten days. His immediate attention could have that kind of effect, especially since he'd killed an architect whose mosque had disappointed him, and also taken away the man's wealth and children. Timur was active in the city, and everywhere his demands were exacting, if not always met. A mosque built to honor the mother of Sarai Malk Kanum had, he thought, too low a doorway and must be done again. The city also lacked a street on which the goods that entered could be displayed in an organized manner, a place for the merchandise of China, India, and elsewhere to be sold. The spices, gems, musk, silks, and skins. He ordered that it be created immediately, running from one end of the city to the other, and the homes in the way to be demolished. Workers set about the cycle of destroy and rebuild, laboring day and night with such a noise that Clavijo compared them to teams of devils. Timur was active, but not particularly mobile, for he was borne about on a pallet, able now neither to walk on foot or sit in the saddle. His health was not good, not good and getting worse, and this deterioration really snuck up on the ambassadors. On Friday, the 1st of November, Clavijo and the others went to see Timor. They'd stayed long enough. They were expecting to be dismissed then, to receive a letter for their king, perhaps some parting presents, and to be allowed to make ready to go. But while they waited for hours for an audience, it was only for him to come out and tell them that he could not speak to them then. He was too busy with his grandson, Pir Muhammad, who was departing soon. They should come back another time. On the following Saturday, they did. But again, they received no audience. They waited, but the lord of Samarkand would not come out of his tent. He was ill. He did emerge eventually, but again, the ambassadors were sent away, this time by his attendants. Timur would not see them. On Sunday, they came back again, and again, they waited. There was a lot of waiting in their work. They could not go unless Timur dismissed them, and that was exactly what they told his three men who now confronted them. The three men who not only announced that Timur would not be seeing them, but also then summoned the man who was responsible as the Castilian's host, and had him beaten. There was confusion all around, and attendance in bewilderment. Timur was sick, very sick, and it seems that no one knew quite what they should do. 
The ambassadors were sent off to their lodgings and ordered to remain there. They should not, it was made clear, come back until they were sent for. So that didn't leave them with much choice. It was back to the lodgings for them, there to wait. They waited for that last invitation, but it never came. Only a visit from a man who told them they should go. They should not wait. There was to be no exit interview, no official parting from the ruler they had spent more than a year of their lives coming to see. They should leave now. They should go to Tabriz. Timur's grandson there would dismiss them. Clovijo and his colleagues were, to say the least, startled by all of this. They did not know what to make of it at all, but they certainly weren't taking their sudden visitor's word that they should go. In the chaos of Imperial Samarkand, with Timur seriously ill and his attendants unsure of what to do, Clovijo and the others found the men who'd earlier sent them away from Timur's side and tried to talk their way back into his presence. Timur had told them to come just the previous Thursday. He had told them, and they had come. They could not, would not now leave without a letter for their lord. Without Timur's compliments to their king, and an audience. They could not, but they were going to have to. Timur's men were unyielding. The Castilians were absolutely not going to be seeing him before they left. They were going to be leaving without delay, and that was very much that. On the 18th of November, their time was up, and a man was at their lodgings who would guide them. Again, they protested that they could not leave, not without seeing Timur, or at least having a letter from him. But again, it was made clear that they would have neither. They could go now, Timur's men told them, now with all the supplies due to their rank. Or they could go later without them. Evidently, the prospect of heading home diplomatically empty-handed said easier with them than did that of unsupported travel. And so they left. They left the city, and with that ambassador from Mamluk, Egypt, waited at a site nearby for other diplomats heading back for Turkey and other destinations. Everyone was leaving Samarkand. There was talk that Timur had lost the power of speech and was dying. It was said that his people wanted everyone out before it happened, before the news could be spread that Timur had died. On November 21st, the travelers were on the road, with those supplies and in the company of diplomats and dignitaries from across the ways west, those like them who had been ejected from Samarkand. Behind them, Timur's people made ready, Plans were doubtless already afoot for succession, with messengers going out and meetings held, both secret and not so secret. Was Pir Mohammed, who would have been back by now in his own domains, yet aware? Were Shah Rukh, Miran Shah, and Khalil Sultan? If not just yet, then soon, the players would all be poised for the moment when the old ruler died and the opportunity at last came to replace him. That was the way one imagines things playing out behind the travelers, Clavijo, the Castilians, and the rest, as they traveled away from the imperial city and its dying master.
But that was not quite yet where events were leading. Not yet. We are going to get to where all of this was going. After this quick break. And after a quick word from another history podcast. On a cold January afternoon in 1649, Charles I, King of England, Ireland, and Scotland, was executed by his own subjects. His crime? High treason. This unprecedented act rocked the Three Kingdoms and the fledgling British Empire, and followed ten years of rebellion, revolution, and civil war. Pax Britannica, a history podcast on the British Empire, covers these incredible events, complete with interviews with world-leading experts on the period. Find Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link slash pax. In the final weeks of 1404, Clavijo was heading home. Everyone was heading home. And Timur... Timur was dying. Except he wasn't. Timur had recovered before from periods of apparently devastating ill health. And he did so again now. Not only recovering, but almost immediately departing on yet another incredibly ambitious campaign. Perhaps, given his age and condition, perhaps even his most ambitious. So, even as Clavijo was moving west to the city of Bukhara, and on the 10th of December, crossing the Amudaria, Timur was going the other way. Timur was heading for China. There had been those recent confrontations with the Yongli emperor's representative. We saw, through Clavijo's eyes, the exchange was not entirely friendly. What with Timur having the envoy's seat bumped back in importance, and then referring to his emperor as a thief and a bad man. However, Timur's invasion here in late 1404 was not a sudden move, was not precipitated by any particular diplomatic disagreement during this encounter. It had been in the offing for quite some time. As the Yongli emperor saw it, Timur ruled over these lands only as his superior to the east allowed it. For this honor, he owed tribute, and there had been a time when Timur had paid it, but not now in years, and not now when the Chinese envoy made clear that he should. Timur had been preparing for this conflict for some time. He had directed his follower, Al-Adad, to map the lands east in exacting detail. According to Bavarian traveler Johann Schultberger, he had, back in 1401, also ordered Al-Adad to prepare the way for the movement of a great host, for such large armies could not simply go where they wished and expect to eat off the land. A path had been chosen, fortresses constructed, and agricultural lands prepared to feed the army and its horses. People taken from whatever they'd been working at and given over entirely to labor in the fields at raising cattle and crops. It was a daunting task, and we see something of it in the account of Timur's chronicler, Ibn Arab Shah, then a teenager living in Samarkand. In his account, the responsibility is received by al as very near to a death sentence. 
a monumental undertaking with huge expectations that, quote, routed his rest and made sleep fly like a bird from the nest of his eyelids. The example of that executed architect was fresh in Aladad's mind, and he saw in Timur's commands his own ruinous future, his children orphaned. However, it does not appear to have been shortcomings on his part that hindered the Timurid march east. By Christmas Day 1404, the Castilians were moving west through the mountains of northeastern Iran, their journey passing without any great detail. There were long days and nights in the desert, days on snowy mountains that were but thinly populated, a night in a large deserted building near a ruined castle. There was a hilltop city where when something unclean fell into the fountain, a cold wind would blow. At some point, they had rejoined their earlier route, roughly following it now in the other direction. On the 26th of January, they dined with a son-in-law of Timor, the man who had taken charge of those servants who needed to stay behind because of illness. Servants who rejoined them now, save for the two who'd since died. They traveled on towards Sultania, the snow at times so bad that they could go no further, that they could not see the way before them, that when they did go on, it was with thirty men clearing the path ahead. Meanwhile, Timur was having his own issues with the weather. It was winter time, maybe not the best season to start this kind of thing, but then maybe he didn't think he had much time left and it had to happen now. Now, Ibn Arabshah wrote, in apparent reference to the sickness our travelers had seen, when he had recovered from his drunkenness, he attacked his plan of going to the ends of the earth and seeking its coasts and borders that he might despoil kingdoms and countries. But that was not going tremendously well. Ibn Arabshah shows us Timur having prepared himself and his armies against the broad swords of ice and sharp spears of cold, with extra coverings for the tents, and for themselves, the cloaks and blankets. But it does not seem to have been enough. Snow fell upon them, such that their surroundings, we read, appeared like the plain of the Last Judgment, or a sea which God forged out of silver. And when the breath of the wind blew on the breath of man, it quenched his spirit and froze him on his horse. Neither man nor horse were safe from these harsh conditions. Quote, Many perished of his army, noble and base alike, and winter destroyed great and small among them, and their noses and ears fell off, scorched by cold. And winter ceased not to attack and poured against them wind and seas until it submerged them, while they wandered in weakness. Yet, Ibn Arabshah continued, Timur cared not for the dying, and grieved not for those that perished. He pressed on, on his last, doomed venture. Clavijo reached Sultania on the 13th of February, and left on the 21st. By the end of the month, he was in Tabriz and in early March, given fresh horses and directions to go speak to Umar Mirza, grandson of Timur. There was a false start when a messenger from Umar sent them back to Tabriz to wait, 
But later in the month, they were again on the way, traveling in the company of ambassadors from Egypt and Turkey, for they had all been told they must go. Closer to Umar Mirza's camp, they were nearly sent back again. They were warned that they should go back. There had been a clash between Umar and another man, a nephew of Timur's. The nephew was now dead, and his followers fought with Umar's in the camp. They should go back. But they pressed on, and the next day, they entered a camp in chaos, found an army divided and in much confusion, found, after some time, a man who would speak to them and give them answers. He told them to go back to Tabriz. It was either there in that camp, or later, that the travelers heard a story of what had happened between Umar and the nephew. How at least the pretext for the trouble had been personal. An argument, essentially, over the fate of a woman and what she ought to do. But the timing for that to have been the case was suspect. Something broader in scale was likely at work behind this discord. For word was now spreading that Timur was dead. It was not the first time it had happened. Not the dying, exactly. But not the first time that messengers had gone out, announcing the death of Timur. At least twice before, he had ordered it himself, just to see what came next, and crush accordingly those who misstepped in his perceived absence. And indeed, as the ambassadors waited in Tabriz, word reached the city that Timur was both alive and actually marching against the Mamluks in Egypt. But this was not the case. Timur had made it as far east as Otrar, in southern Kazakhstan, struggling against the climate and against his own ill health. He was drinking arak, brewed with drugs and spices, to keep him warm from within. But perhaps that was not the most helpful thing to be taking. He was, according to Ibn Arab Shah, vomiting blood, and the doctor's treatment of ice applied to his belly and chest did little to help. None of them could alter his fate, and not once the, quote, hand of death gave him the cup to drink. And I'll continue here with Ibn Arab Shah's description. Quote, Timur coughed like a camel which is strangled. His color was nigh quenched, and his cheeks foamed like a camel dragged backwards with the rain. And if one saw the angels that tormented him, they showed their joy with which they threaten the wicked to lay waste their houses and utterly destroy the whole memory of them. They brought garments of hair from hell, and drew forth his soul like a spit from a soaked fleece, and he was carried to the cursing and punishment of God, remaining in torment and God's infernal punishment. Timur was dead. I should note here that Ibn Arab Shah had been taken from the city of his birth, taken after it had been violently sacked by Timur. But even if his colorful depiction, considerably lengthier than I've included here, filled in a few details, it was still the case that Timur was not marching on Mamluk Egypt. Instead, his body was being borne back to Samarkand, no more to march on Egypt, China, or anywhere else for that matter. Across his empire, and among the large family he left behind, the race to replace him had already begun, and Clavijo was perhaps at risk 
of being swallowed up by that race. In the region where the Castilians now traveled, Umar Mirza maneuvered against his own father and imprisoned his own brother. More importantly, so far as our travelers were concerned, he'd seemingly abandoned them there in Tabriz, after having informed them by letter that they should go nowhere. They were not dismissed. It was not until April the 29th that they received any further word, but that was no more welcome than the wait. It was men at their lodgings with orders from their lord to take everything the ambassadors had, their gifts, money, and horses, and according to Clavijo, leaving only the clothes they wore. The travelers, of course, protested, but all that earned them was the reminder that they still needed to present themselves to Umar Mirza in order to leave. And that, in this suddenly post-Timor world, proved harder than it should have been. Umar Mirza was not in one settled place, not in the place where his men had said they should find him. He was off hunting for his father, and then rushing back to his imprisoned brother, who he'd ordered should be poisoned, who had not waited around to be poisoned, who had instead been freed in a violent armed escape, and even plundered the treasury on his way out. Then there was the fact that the Georgian king had rebelled and was invading. There was a lot going on, and the foreign ambassadors were fairly low down the list of priorities, as the second year of their journey ticked away. They were so low down the list that it wasn't until mid-August they'd get that audience. By then, their belongings had been returned to them, allowing for a civil parting exchange of gifts. A sword here, a robe there. But still, there was confusion, a sense that not all was right with how this was proceeding. The embassies from Egypt and Turkey were imprisoned, and though those from Turkey were quickly released, mace-wielding men came to Clavijo's lodgings to seize clothes, robes, and other items. The order of things in Timurid lands no longer held, and it was well past time to be leaving. On the 22nd of August, they did, heading out before dawn with the Turkish contingent for mutual security. They moved quickly, motivated by understandable fear as to the uncertainty of the situation. Just two days later, at the city of Khoi, they heard that Kara Yusuf, leader of the black sheep Turkomans, was in the field with 10,000 cavalry, robbing and plundering. They left the direct road and continued on, picking up rumors as they went of Kara Yusuf and the violence of his men, turning ever more out of their way in an effort to avoid them, and receiving help at times. They had split from the other ambassadors, but the Timurid lord of an Armenian castle arranged for them to be taken by safe paths. This guide would see them through to Ispirsh in northeastern Turkey and another from there would direct them toward Trebizond. They were in that rugged mountainous territory south of the Black Sea now, as early September passed. Rugged enough, their wooden bridges stretched at times from one rock to another, and pack animals were not always usable, and made more dangerous by the locals who would not let them pass without parting with some of their goods. I'm sure the Castilians did not wait around to negotiate, 
would not have wanted to let storm season find them again on the Black Sea. On the 17th of September, they reached Trebizond, finding a Genoese captain's ship with a cargo of nuts bound for Pera. Arriving in that city on the 22nd of October, Clavijo's observations were not so full now as they got closer to home, the sparsity of detail making the text seem to accelerate towards its conclusion. On the 4th of November, they sailed from Pera with two Genoese carracks that had come from Kaffa. They stopped in Gallipoli to take on a shipment of cotton, reached Chios, and left it on the 17th, and on the last day of November, they anchored off of Sicily. There were storms on the way to Gaeta, and more that forced them to return and stay there after a false start. They left on the 22nd of December, but were again beset by foul weather and forced to take refuge in Corsica, where they spent their second Christmas abroad. They were in Genoa on the 3rd of January, leaving it on the 1st of February. It was the last leg of their journey, but on this sailing, Clavijo says, the weather was worse than any they'd yet encountered in all their crossings. This seems like it would have been an exaggeration. There had been that shipwreck on the Black Sea, but it would not be until March the 1st that they'd reach San Lucar de Barameda. It had taken a long time. They'd been nearly three years on the road, but they were so close now, in the south of Spain, traveling first to Sevilla and then northward. And quote, on Monday, the 24th of March, the ambassadors reached the court of their lord, the king of Castilla, which they found in Alcala de Enieras. They had, at last, made it. After dangerous seas, mountains, deserts, snows, and people, after month on month until the months turned to years of traveling from Western Europe to Central Asia and back again. Behind them, the Timurid Empire had fallen into disarray. It had fallen apart and not yet been put back together. It had been about a year and four months since the travelers had left Timur's Samarkand. Just over a year since he died, and his empire had not stood still since his death. There had been the early rush. It was clear to many that simply having Samarkand itself would be a huge advantage, that the city, plus a loyal army, could easily outweigh Pir Mohammed's claim to having been chosen by Timur before he died. One Timurid grandson who tried that route to power was by this time already a stuffed head on display to his relatives, and some of the other characters we've come across through our story wouldn't fare too well either. Pir Muhammad who Clavijo had met in Samarkand, would die in 1407. He'd battle against the Timurid grandson who'd won that opening race to the city. He would try to take back what he thought rightfully his, but he would be betrayed and murdered by someone close to him. Muran Shah, Clavijo's host in Sultania, of whom there were so many stories, he of falling from horses, tearing down buildings, and, slash or, perhaps just trying to nudge his father out of power. He would die in a 1408 battle with the very same Kara Yusuf who Clavijo had been trying to avoid. 
His son, Khalil Sultan, actually had won that race to the capital and would rule until 1409, when he'd be removed from power, his actual death coming two years later. And there were other members of Timurid royalty, other deaths, as the struggle for control of the dead man's empire played itself out. When the dust did settle, it would be Shah Rukh, Timur's other son, the one who had invited the Castilians to come visit him in Herat, who would hold power. He was actually going to do so for a surprisingly stable period of not just years, but decades. The exact date of its beginning, perhaps arguable. Its eventual conclusion, at last coming with his death in 1447. As for our traveler, he had played his small part in the Timurid history and would not now be traveling so extensively again. Understandably, he would serve his king in a physically closer capacity as Chamberlain, but not for long, just until Enrique's death at the end of 1406, after which he would retire to Madrid and apparently live well until his own death in 1412. His journey had been a success of sorts, in that, by his own testimony at least, he appears to have pleased Timor, and then he survived to return home. He had not managed to get that letter to bring back with him, but then, with Timor's immediate death, it's not clear what value such a thing would have had. It's not clear exactly what Enrique would have really wanted. Much is made of European rulers' delight at what Timur had done to strike down the Ottoman threat. But what of the new Timurid one that rose in the immediate aftermath? As Timur slaughtered his way into the eastern Mediterranean, was there not some concern that he might come just a little further the next time? That his men might soon be stacking piles of Central European skulls, and so on? As Edward Gibbon, he of the decline and fall, put it, Timur's armies were invincible, his ambition was boundless, and his zeal might aspire to conquer and convert the Christian kingdoms of the West, which already trembled at his name. Were those letters and gifts then motivated as much by fear as by grateful fascination? Quite possibly, but in any case, neither the highest possible hopes Enrique may have invested in the venture, nor the worst of anxieties, would be realized. Timurid armies would not return to mop up a recovering Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans had some centuries still to go. But they also wouldn't carry their blood-soaked work on into the lands of Europe's Latin Christian rulers. In the end, it's hard to say if the multi-year exertions of our traveler had much of any impact at all upon history. Sometimes it's like that. But then, he saw so much of the world, and noted down so much about it, that even if his king had little enough to gain from his efforts, we, at least, can be grateful to Rui González de Clevijo. And that's where we'll leave this traveler and this series. If you are listening on Patreon, then expect me back in a few days with the bonus ending for this episode. Something about Ibn Arab Shah. But either way, I'll be back again soon enough with a new episode and a new story. And I'll talk to you then.
Human Circus will return. Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.